has found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are still. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me today as we continue through our study of the Gospel of John. I hope that you've all had a good week and that you are staying safe, healthy, and joyful. And I also hope that you've been able to stay dry. We've had a very rainy week, as you may well know. Yeah, we certainly needed the rain, but I mean, quite honestly, it would be nice if we didn't get it all at once. But before we go any further, let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are mighty and you are holy, and we praise your name. We thank you for the privilege of being able to study your word. Quiet our thoughts and open our hearts as we prepare to receive what you have for us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Over the next two Sundays, we will be focusing on a man who, apart from Jesus, was the most theologically significant figure in the New Testament. A man whose birth was marked by angelic proclamation and divine intervention that echoed the birth of Isaac to Abraham and Sarah. I am speaking, of course, about Jesus' cousin, John. He's known by a variety of names uh, within different church traditions. To some, he has been John the Forerunner. To others, he's John the Immerser, John the Baptizer. And then there's the one that we are most closely familiar with, John the Baptist. Much like Jesus, John's birth was meticulously recorded in the Gospel of Luke. His mother, Elizabeth, was a cousin of Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his father, Zachariah, was a priest. Well, according to Luke, his parents were righteous before God, and, and they walked blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. They were, as Luke describes, advanced in years and had never been able to have a child. Well, one day when Zechariah was serving in the temple, the angel Gabriel appeared to him and gave him a rather startling message. Listen to what Gabriel had to say, and I'll be reading from Luke chapter 1, verses 13 through 17. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayers have been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Well, Zechariah was a bit surprised to, to hear this, especially because of how old he, he and Elizabeth are. 
And he actually challenges Gabriel by asking him how he can be sure that, that this is the truth. Well, apparently challenging an angel is, is frowned upon because Gabriel tells him in no uncertain terms that he was indeed sent by God to bring good news. And furthermore, because Zechariah did not believe, Zechariah would be struck mute, unable to speak e- even a word until the events that had been foretold had come to pass. So Zechariah, he, he comes out of the temple chamber, and, and there's a crowd of people standing around wondering why he'd been in there for so long. He tries to, to sign to them, but, but they can't understand, and so they, they just assume that he had seen a vision. Boy, how, how right they were about that. Zechariah finishes out his, his shift, his tour of duty, if you will, at the temple, and he goes back home, and not too long afterward, Elizabeth conceives. When she's about uh, six months along, her cousin Mary comes to visit and to share the news of, of her own pregnancy. Well, as Mary as greeting Elizabeth, baby John recognizes Jesus. And as the scriptures describe, he leaped for joy in the womb. And Elizabeth is immediately filled with the Holy Spirit. She tells Mary what has happened and, and refers to her as the mother of my Lord. And that's just an absolutely amazing thing right there. Uh, well, on the, on the day of his birth, Zechariah and Elizabeth have a house full of people. All of the relatives and, and neighbors are gathered around and, and celebrating the fact that the Lord had shown such great mercy in giving this couple a child. Well, eight days later, that same crowd of people returns for the traditional ceremony of, of circumcision and the giving of the child's name. Well, the people were quite surprised to discover that he would not be named after his father, which was the convention of the time. Instead, Elizabeth tells them that the child would be named John. Well, I guess, I'm guessing when, when Zechariah was struck mute, he was also struck deaf because the, the scriptures describe the people having to use signs to communicate with him. Uh, when they try to get his his take on, on this choice of names. Well, Zechariah, he asks for a tablet, and, and when they give it to him, he writes, his name is John. And the people are just absolutely amazed that both parents came up with the same name despite the obvious inability to communicate. And Zechariah, he immediately regains his sense of speech and hearing, and the first thing he does is launch into an extended prayer to bless God. The people are, well, they're a little freaked out. And, and the word of what happened, it, it spreads throughout the country, all, all through Judea. Luke records that, that everybody knew, everybody knew that the hand of God was upon baby John. And they wondered among themselves, what plans the Lord had for him. Although Luke tells us that, that John grew and became strong in the spirit and, and lived in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel, we don't know a whole lot beyond that. Again, m- much like Jesus, the events of John's life between his birth and his appearance in the Gospels were not recorded in detail. The consensus, however, among, among scholars is that John was, in fact, an itinerant preacher 
and quite possibly a member of a religious sect known as the Essenes. The Essenes were semi-ascetic, meaning that they lived a very severe and frugal existence in, in locations that were set apart from the populated areas. Although they lived in the wilderness, they weren't hermits. According to early Jewish historians, the Essenes lived a, a strict communal life uh, that is often compared to the Christian monasticism movement of the early 4th century that had resulted in the creation of the first monasteries. Well, despite the lack of concrete evidence linking John to the Essene movement, there is one compelling detail that has perpetuated this theory over the years, and that is that the Essenes were known to have practiced ritual purification through water baptism. Historical records inform us that ritual purification was a common practice among the Judean people of that day. But the Essene version had a particular requirement. According to Duncan Howlett, who is author of the book The Essenes and Christianity, according to Mr. Howlett, repentance was a prerequisite for Essene baptism. In his book, Howlett cited an Essene community rule which stated as follows, They shall not enter the water, for they will not be cleansed unless they have turned from their evil. Repent and be baptized. According to all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this is exactly the message that John preached as he traveled throughout Judea, which makes total sense when one considers that he was known as John the Baptist. Another fact that, that we can discuss about John is his choice of clothing. When we first meet John in the, in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark, he comes across as a, a bit of an odd character. Both of the gospel writers make a point to describe what he is wearing. And that's something that is rarely done elsewhere in the Gospels. Listen to the descriptions from Matthew and Mark. And this is from Matthew chapter 3, verse 4. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist and, and his food was locusts and honey. And this is from Mark chapter 1, verse 6. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and, and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate, you guessed it, locusts and honey. Wearing camel's hair and a, a leather belt was, was not an accident or a wardrobe malfunction, but rather it, it was a deliberate act that held a specific spiritual meaning. You see, aside from demonstrating his poverty, the description of John's garments would have drawn the attention of anyone familiar with the Holy Scriptures. To a Jewish audience, this detail linked John to a very significant prophet in the Old Testament who also wore similar distinctive clothing, the prophet Elijah. Here's a description of Elijah from 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8. And he wore a garment of hair with, with a belt of leather about his waist, and he said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. Elijah, who, whose name means, my God is Yahweh, 
would play an important role when the Messiah finally appeared. According to a prophecy from the book of Malachi, Elijah's return would be a sign that the promised one was on his way. And here's uh, something from Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Even Jesus himself made the connection between John the Baptist and Elijah, which further solidified the role of John as the, as the prophet who would prepare the way for the Messiah. Here are the words of our Lord from, from Matthew chapter 11, verses 11 through 15. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Because of his father's priestly vocation, it's probably safe to assume that, that John was raised under the teachings of Zechariah. He was taught from the Torah and the Talmud and the other important Jewish holy books. In the tradition of the day, he was more than likely being groomed to follow, to follow rather, in his father's footsteps. But something happens, and his life is radically changed. The Spirit of God leads John to depart from his home, to live off the land, traveling and, and preaching throughout the Judean wilderness. And then, somewhere around 27 29 A.D., and, and we know the date thanks to the very detailed account in the Gospel of Luke, somewhere around that time, the Word of God comes once again to John, and the content of his message changes. Although he still continues to preach the need for repentance, his words become infused with a new urgency. The kingdom that was coming was now the kingdom that was here. And, and that is where we find John as we move into our text for today, which is found in, in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 15 through 18. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me, ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. As I've mentioned in a previous message, the Apostle John's purpose in writing his gospel was so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, 
the Son of God, and that by believing we would have life in him. To reinforce this purpose, John brings in other witnesses, other witnesses to the truth of of Jesus Christ. Well, the first witness that he introduces is John the Baptist. In verse 15, the apostle summarizes John the Baptist's testimony. Although his testimony will be covered in much greater detail a little bit later on in our study, there are a couple of significant points in this verse. First, we have the use of the phrase, cried out. This speaks to the very bold and public witness of of John the Baptist. But more importantly, it, it makes an important theological connection. Listen to how Matthew describes John's ministry in Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. The point here is that John the Apostle, he could have used any number of words in place of cried out. For example, he could have said professed or proclaimed or declared or announced. However, by using the phrase cried out, the Apostle refers to John's description of himself that is described in Matthew. If, if, John the Baptist is indeed the voice in the wilderness about whom Isaiah prophesied, which the apostle clearly believes that he is, then we should all listen to him. Because this is the first time that God has spoken to his people in over 400 years. John had come as a herald sent by God with a very important message. The Messiah was coming. The Messiah was coming, and John had some particular details about who it would be. When he says, the one who comes after me ranks before me, he's referring to two facts. One, that he was born six months before his cousin, and two, that Jesus began his public ministry after John had begun his. However, Despite his primacy in the temporal sense, John declares that Jesus ranked before him. And why is this? Because Jesus was before him. This is a, this is a direct reference to the pre-existence of Christ, the divine attribute that we talked about back in verse 1. And that is attested to by the Lord himself in John 8, verse 58, when Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Well, after the brief summary of verse 15, the apostle calls upon the testimony of all believers, including himself. In verse 16, from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Notice the use of the phrase, we have all received. And if you remember... A couple Sundays ago, I, I referred to the inclusive language that pervades John gospel, John's gospel. Well, here's an example of that. All 
who believe in Jesus received grace upon grace. The fact that everyone can experience the same level of divine blessing is based upon one immutable truth, and that's that Jesus Christ is not an inferior version of God. As it says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. As a result of this divine fullness, Jesus is an inexhaustible source of everything that we will ever need. Grace flows through him in an endless supply. The immeasurable riches that, that Paul talks about in Ephesians 2.7 are found in the fountain of Jesus Christ. And moving on to verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace had triumphed over the law. And to borrow a phrase from John MacArthur, the impact was monumental. The law, as given through Moses, was imbued with with God's glory and reflected his righteous and holy character. And although there are numerous examples of God's grace demonstrated in the Old Testament, it was not because of the law. The law was not an instrument of grace. Rather, it, it was the atonement of Christ that provided the basis for the grace and forgiveness that God would bestow upon repentant sinners who had violated his holy law. The law didn't save anyone. Listen to what the Apostle Paul had to say in Acts, verse, excuse me, Acts chapter 13, verses 38 and 39. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. The law merely convicts man of his inability to follow perfectly God's righteous standards, and it condemns him to divine judgment. Well, the upside of of that grim assessment is that it also reveals our need for grace and forgiveness, and it points us to the Savior. As Paul describes in Galatians 3, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. That was from the ESV translation that I use, but I also want want you to hear that same verse from the Worldwide English Translation. The law watched over us as if we were children until Christ came, and then God would put us right with himself through faith in Christ. To receive grace, we have to believe in the truth. The truth that Jesus claimed in John 10 when he said, I and the Father are one. This is the reality that that makes our final verse so powerful. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. As John writes, no one had ever seen God, and for two very good reasons. For for one, he was invisible, as described in Colossians 1, uh, Hebrews 11, 
1 Timothy 1 and elsewhere. And secondly, because to see him would result in instant death. If you remember, we talked about that just last week. Remember when Moses asked God to show him his glory? And God tells him that no man could look upon his face and live. So John closes this prologue section by echoing the words of verse 1. Again, he's presenting us with the notion of God existing as more than a single entity. In the phrase, the only God, that word only implies that same sense of -of one-of-a-kind uniqueness that is ascribed to Jesus, which makes perfect sense in the context of him being at his Father's side. The one and only Son has made God known. Depending on the translation that you are using, you may have something different than made him known at the end of verse 18. Your text may read uh, revealed him or declared him or if you're using the New American Standard, you have explained him. And that that last example, explained him, it it comes closest to the meaning, but it still falls a, just a little bit short. The Greek word that is translated there as shown him or explained him is exegeomai. And, and that's where we get our, the English word exegesis, which means to study and interpret scripture. In the original language, exegeomai, it did mean to explain. However, it meant to explain in great detail. Can you see what I, what I mean when I said that the phrase explained him didn't quite convey the, the full force of the word? Explaining in great detail implies the the impartation of knowledge with a purpose. It implies education. Jesus Christ, as the one and only Son of God, is uniquely qualified to interpret God. And it follows, then, that, that he would be uniquely qualified to explain God to us in, in an unprecedented level of detail. Recognizing that, that Jesus is the answer to the question, what is God like? That was not immediately obvious, even to the people who were closest to him. Listen to this passage from John chapter 14, verses 7 to 9. And this is Jesus speaking to a couple of his disciples. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? As we discussed last week, one of the primary purposes of the word becoming flesh, was was to reveal God to man. What What an incredible opportunity we have been given to know God through the person of Jesus Christ. Well, thus concludes the prologue section of John's Gospel. Over the course of 18 verses, John has provided us with a 
a concise synopsis of the entire book and has provided us with four key reference points that, that will shape and inform our understanding as we continue on with our study. Point one, Jesus existed in intimate fellowship with God from all eternity. Point two, the word became flesh. Jesus came to earth and was born as a man. My third point is through the incarnation, Jesus brought the fullness of God's truth and grace to mankind. And lastly, Jesus revealed God to us and how he did so will be seen throughout the remainder of this book. You may have noticed that the fullness of God's grace and truth is set apart on its own with its very own item line. And the obvious question would be why? Why aren't grace and truth part of the revealed God that, that I mentioned in item four? Aren't they part of God's attributes? Well, the answer here is, is yes. And no, Jesus revealed God to the whole world. Anyone who, who saw what he did and, and heard what he said, they were seeing God in action. And it is true. Grace and truth were quite evident in, in the words and, and the deeds of Jesus. However, the grace and truth mentioned in item number three they refer to a grace and truth that have a very specific function. If you recall from last week's message, grace and truth are the attributes of God that lead us to salvation. As referred to in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The general revelation of God in Jesus did not and will not automatically save anyone. There is no mistaking that John's gospel is full of inclusive language that flows from the inclusive statements of our Lord himself. But it is a conditional inclusion. Listen to Paul again from Romans chapter 1. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. As we read that passage, it's plain to see the conditional aspect of the gospel. The gospel is indeed the power of salvation to everyone. And that sounds good so far, right? And then we see the conditional phrase, who believe. The power of salvation is available to everyone who believes. Believing in the truth of, of Jesus Christ is the only way to receive the grace of his salvation. I am the way, the truth, and the life. The Lord's own words from John 14, they couldn't be any clearer. Their exclusive nature is at the heart of conditional inclusion and the driving force behind the purpose of John's gospel, which he so clearly states in John 20. 
These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John wants us to see Jesus through the lens of John 14.6. He wants us to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus was exactly who he claimed to be and that he is able to do exactly what he said that he could do. As the one and only Son of God, he offers us the one and only way to eternal peace with God, the, the truth of which has not set well with everybody. The exclusive claims of, of Jesus are a huge op- obstacle to the postmodern all-religions-leads-to-God worldview, and, and they've been described as unfair and offensive in some circles. Well, however, despite the opinions to the contrary, truth is truth. And as such, it it offers the only antidote to the poison being spread by, well, in here, we we really have to call it by what it is, being spread by a satanic lie. In his commentary on on the Gospel of John, Dr. F.F. Bruce said the following, Jesus is, in fact, the only way by which men and women may come to the Father. There is no other way. If this seems offensively exclusive, let it be borne in mind that the one who makes this claim is the incarnate word, the revealer of the Father. If God has no avenue of communication apart from his word, mankind has no avenue of approach to God apart from that same word, who became flesh and dwelt among us in order to supply such an avenue of approach. Amen. It is my prayer that as we make our way through this gospel, that we all find blessing in the Apostle John's words. If you have been a a believer for a long time, as I know that many of you have, I hope that you find joy in the reminding. If you have yet to make a decision for Jesus, then I pray for recognition, that you recognize Jesus for who he truly is and, and choose to believe in his name. Take my word for it, please. It will be the best decision that you'll ever make. Would you pray with me, please? Lord Jesus, we come to you as sinful and broken people, and you make us whole. You lavish your mercy upon us and free us from the chains of the enemy. By your grace, we have been saved into the promise of eternal life and are guided and protected by your Holy Spirit. Let love reign in our hearts as we seek to bring others into the light of your salvation. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Well, thank you for being with me today. As always, I pray that the Lord continue to bless you and to keep you and to be gracious unto each and every one of you. I pray that he turns his face and makes it shine upon you and grants you his peace. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Have a blessed week. Try to stay dry. Be careful on the wet roads. Stay safe, healthy, joyful. Give thanks every day to God for the beautiful life that he's given us.
拜。First Corinthians 15 is the resurrection chapter.、Uh, in that wonderful chapter, and it's a long chapter,、uh, Paul writes these words: "For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures; He was buried; He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures." First importance. He died for our sins, was buried, was raised. The New Living Translation says, "I passed on to you what was most important." I chose this verse now for this communion time for two reasons. One, of course, it has to do with his death, burial, the things that took place right after that Lord's Supper, things that were to remember. Um, the other reason I decided to say a couple of words about that verse was these words: "The first importance I delivered to you as of first importance, or as the most important thing." The reason I'm emphasizing that, and I'm sure you're aware of the scripture, is that we've always had distractions distracting us from what's most important. That's part of life. But this year. Right now, right now, I'm recording January 2021. It feels like last year. Distractions is an understatement. Everything is a distraction. Everything, and yet, and yet, we, you and I, need to remember always what is of first importance. Because there's so many things right now you can be thinking about. I'm not even going to list them or preach to you about it. You know what I'm saying. And yes, there's important things. But、first importance, most importance. That's what Christ did for us. We have a lot of anxiety with this time. And another scripture、uh, from the Sermon on the Mount, of course, comes to mind, and、uh, the context of not being anxious, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. That word "first," first importance. What Christ did, I saw in First Corinthians, and now seek. First, the kingdom of God and His righteousness. May we always have that attitude. And, and right now, we want to、uh, share together in、uh, the Lord's Supper and helping us once again to, to really bring these things to our, our minds, to our hearts,、uh, that we are able to focus on the most important thing. He willingly sacrificed him, allowed himself to be the sacrificial lamb on the cross, suffered and died for us. The bread reminds us of his body and what what took place that was for our benefit. Let's take the bread. The juice reminds us of His blood. Jesus was the Son of God. He was also a man, a human man, who shed His blood. But the blood of Christ is different in that it cleanses us from unrighteousness. Still, blood. This juice reminds us of His wonderful blood and what it means to us that He shed it for us. Let's take the juice.
one more uh, interesting verse with the word first in it. We've seen seek first the kingdom of God and also what's of first importance. Uh, one more verse uh, from 1 John. We love because he first loved us. That's why we love and how grateful we are of that. Let's pray. Father, the fact that you first loved us, your love wasn't any emotional thing by its, it was a tremendous thing. It was a sacrificial love. It was beyond imagination. Um, wonderful, wonderful, the fact that you loved us, that you love us right now. We're grateful for that. We're in awe of that. We, we praise you. We worship you. And the fact that you love us and the fact that you, you've done so much, Father. You're just so much. You're just everything to us. Thank you, Lord God. We just praise you, Father. Thank you all. God bless you. Be well, as Jim always says. Be safe. Bye-bye. drought and storm what heights of love what depths of peace when fears are still when striving cease my comforter my all in all here in the love of Christ I stand of God in helpless babe this gift of love and righteousness scorned by the ones he came to save till on that cross as Jesus died the wrath of God was satisfied for every sin on him was laid in the death of Christ I live There in the ground His body lay Light of the world by darkness slain 